This is the time where we spend our attention and our time looking at God's Word. Uh, so grab one of those if you want. And if you've got a Bible with you, open it up to the book of 1 John. We deliberately take our time uh, walking through books of the Bible uh, verse by verse so that we can understand God's intended meaning uh, when he inspired that letter to be written to the church. Um, and this morning, we're going to get into a section of 1 John. Uh, that is a clear indication and reminder of why we do that. Uh, there is an opportunity that we have as teachers of the Bible uh, to actually plan what we're going to do and what we're going to say. And if we chose to not go verse by verse through the Bible, I don't know that we would ever choose to teach this text. So that any of you who have been reading along with us know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, but there is a feast for us this morning in the Word of God. Um, and we're going to have to ask God to create in us a hunger for it as we get into it. Uh, because apart from the plan and the purpose to teach the whole counsel of God's Word, I'm not sure that any of us who preach here would ever just open up to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18, and say, this is what we're going to do this week. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles open, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, I'm going to read our entire text for us this morning, and then we'll go back, we'll pray, and we'll begin to walk through it. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, starting there, goes like this. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now look over quickly to chapter 4. You probably don't have to turn your pages. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now we're going to have our inner Presbyterian moment like we did in the first service. This is the word of God. Now you respond, thanks be to God. We need it this morning. So this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray. Father, this is a feast of your word this morning. And I would just pray that you would do what only you can do and you would create in us a hunger for your word. 
that we would be satisfied by your word, that it would indeed be for us life and truth. We ask this, Lord, that it would do in us what you've promised it will do, and you will glorify your son Jesus through your word in us. May it change us and conform us into his image for his name's sake and for his glory and our joy. Amen. Amen. Now, we've pointed out in our series so far in the book of 1 John uh, that John has been very good to us as a writer and that throughout the entire letter, he tells us why he's actually writing. He's actually really clear. He'll say multiple times, this is why I'm writing to you. He, he started the book, if you remember. You can go back and listen to it. He said, this is why I'm writing. I'm writing that your joy may be remained. He was writing for the joy of the church. And for the joy of the church, he pointed our attention and our eyes back to the person and work of Jesus, back to the fellowship that we have with God right now because of Jesus. And John continued to go on, and we saw, and, and just after that, that he said, I'm writing this to you, children. I'm writing to you that you may not sin. That you may not sin, that we would make it our aim to not sin. And, and for that to be our aim, he then pointed us again back to the person of God and the character of God, the holiness of God, the faithfulness of God, the justice of God, and ultimately the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, our propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice of God that paid the price for our sins, the advocacy of Jesus that stands before God the Father, pleading his sacrifice in our place for our sins. John has been telling us why he's writing to encourage the church for their joy, for their holiness. And the whole time, he's pointing our attention and our trust and our hope back to the person and work of Jesus. And this morning is no different. I don't know if you picked up on it while we were reading, but he tells us again a few different reasons of why he's actually writing and why he's actually writing what he's writing in this particular section. Let me show you what he said and see if it can help encourage you a little bit. John says in verse 21, I want you to catch this. I'm writing to you talking to the church. I'm writing to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So again, with his insistence upon encouraging the church and and writing to the church to reassure their faith, to reinforce their faith and their confidence in what they've known and what they've believed to be true about God and about Jesus, John's saying, look, I'm writing all of this to you because you know the truth. What you have heard about Jesus, what you have believed about Jesus, what you have been taught and shown about Jesus from the word of God, it's true. It's not a lie. You know the truth. He'll say later on, and we'll look at it, so you have no need for anyone else to come and give you new truth that is not part of what you've already learned about God and about his son. So be encouraged, church, John is saying. You know the truth. Nothing of what you have been taught and nothing of what you have learned from God's word is error. Or is a lie, and no lie is of the truth. You know the truth about God. The truth has been taught to you, the truth has been revealed to you, and you need to be encouraged by that truth. See, there were some people who were a part of this church at one point, who had done life with this church, who had been a part of the the rhythms of life and the identities of this church. They've cut communion together, they've spent time together, they've watched each other's kids, they've probably been at each other's baptisms at some point. But there's a group of these people that have shared in the life of the church that have left the church. They haven't just gone from first Baptist to second Baptist. They actually left the community of faith. And now they've come back to this church that they were once a part of, and they've been trying to tell the people of God that what they understand about Jesus is relatively incomplete. We'll see in a little bit what that means, that that they were affirming particular things about Jesus that could be in agreement, but they were saying that there was something more this church needed to know. And John's saying, no, no, you need to be encouraged, church. You, you know the truth. You've been taught the truth. You understand and have believed in the truth of God about the Son of God. You don't need anything else. 
And so these people who are telling you that in your knowledge of God and in your knowledge of Jesus, you, you have some measure of ignorance because you're missing some piece of information, he's saying, no, 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 They're, those people are actually showing their ignorance by the very statements of their mouth, by the very fact they think you're ignorant about the person and work of Jesus, it shows and exposes their ignorance. So he said, I'm writing these things to you that you would be encouraged, that your confidence and your assurance would be reinforced. And then in verse 26, he says this. Look down in verse 26. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So you need to have confidence and be encouraged that you know the truth. You've got it. But, but don't be unaware. Don't be unaware. There are people at work trying to deceive you of the truth to which you've known, the truth to which you believe, the truth about God to which you stand on. There is deception at work. So yes, be encouraged that you know the truth. Yes, be encouraged that you have believed the truth. Yes, be encouraged that God's word declares the truth about God and God's son, Jesus. But don't be unaware. There is deception at work. There is deception at work. Little children, John said in chapter four, verse four, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Don't be unaware that there is deception, but don't be afraid. Don't live in fear because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is what John said. We looked at it two weeks ago in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Twice he encouraged this church and reminded this church to live in the good of the reality that the Spirit of God lives in them and because of the work of Jesus Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, they have overcome the evil one, John says. They have overcome Satan. They have overcome sin. They have overcome death. The power with which Satan, sin, and death once held over our lives has now been broken because of who Jesus is and what he has done. This was the promise of what we call the gospel, the the good news. And John says, you have the truth, you know the truth, you believe in the truth, you stand on the truth, but don't be unaware, people are trying to deceive you. And there is deception at work amongst you, but don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. You have the truth of God and you have the spirit of God. This was the other part of God's promise in what we call the gospel. We celebrate and we should celebrate The truth of Jesus' life lived in our place. His death, he died for our sin that we deserve. God's acceptance of his sacrifice in our place. His propitiating sacrifice and his raising Jesus from the dead. And we should celebrate that. But the fullness of the gospel keeps going. Jesus said it's good for you. It's actually in your best interest that I actually leave you and go to be with the Father. Because when I go to be with the Father, I'm going to send to you the very spirit of God that raised me from the dead. This was the fullness of what God had promised his people even in the Old Testament. That God would do what we could not do and he would give us a new heart and a new spirit that would conform in our souls new desires for the glory of God. This is part of the fullness of the gospel promise. And John's reminding them of who they are. You have the truth. You know the truth. You rest in and stand firm on the truth, but don't be unaware that people and things will try to deceive you of that truth, but don't be afraid of it. Greater is he that is in you, the very spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, than he that is in the world. Don't be deceived. Don't be unaware. There is antagonism towards the truth of God, but you know the truth. You have the truth. And you have the spirit of God to lead you and guide you into all truth. 
This is what John is trying to encourage this church in. So now we're going to go back to verse 18. And we're going to see how he does that and what he says. And this is a feast. I don't know why I didn't assign this text to someone else to preach. But as, as Ray gave us Christian ease last week, I'm going to give you some of the things that we tend to talk about and butcher in Christian ease. John gives us a whole feast of words and ideas that spook the majority of us. But as he just said, he wrote it for our encouragement. So it should encourage you. And so my hope this morning is that you will be encouraged by what John says and not be afraid of what John says. That you'll be encouraged in the truth that you have believed, but aware of the way it gets butchered, but confident in who God is and what he has given you in his spirit. So look at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So we get the last hour and we get Antichrist all in this verse right here. So let's start with last hour. What is John talking about when he talks about the last hour? Let me make it really simple for you. In the full scope of God's redemptive work, in the full scope of God's plan, in his interactions with humanity and with creation, the plan of God is for the return of Christ at only a time that God knows and that God has ordained to come and to make new all that sin has destroyed. This was the promise of God. This is what we as followers of Christ are awaiting, the fulfillment of what God has promised. But he started to fulfill that promise in the person and work of Jesus. So when Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived the life, we often say that we were created by God to live. And then he died to pay the price for the life that we live instead. And God raised him from the dead. He defeated our only true and eternal enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ established, or you can say inaugurated, what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was established in the life, death, resurrection, ministry, and person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's awaiting its final fulfillment in the return of Christ, when Jesus returns to fulfill and finish all that he had started in the establishment of his kingdom. Between his resurrection and his final return, that is the last hour. That is the last hour. And John can say it's the last hour on one hand because only God knows when that's going to happen. And I don't mean that in like a casual, only God knows, you know, cultural, only God actually knows. Only he knows when he's actually going to return. Only he knows when he's going to come and consummate his kingdom. So we live in the last hour. This is what John is saying. But he's also saying we can know that it's the last hour for another reason. There's another reason that's more particular, and we can thank John for for this one. John says we can know that it's the last hour. It's the end hour. One, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he's ruling and reigning to the right hand of God. And we're just awaiting his coming to fulfill and consummate his kingdom. But we know because he said that in the last hour, in the time before he was to come and and finish what he started, Jesus said there would be many false prophets, many false Christs who would come. This is what John's talking about when he talks about Antichrist. How many of you heard of Antichrist? How How many of you have heard that word? How many of you have stayed up late at night before because of that word? I was shown a movie in, in elementary school, I think I was in elementary school, or early junior high, and it scared the daylights out of me. I mean, Antichrist was coming, he was chopping people's heads off with guillotines, I mean, it was, it was crazy. This whole word, this whole concept had, had spooked me from a very early age, and John did not use this word to spook God's people. I, I want you to know that John is the only one who uses this word. 
You will only find the word antichrist in the epistles of John, in 1 John and then one time in 2 John. And it's very simple. We, we tend to make it so much more complicated than it really is. Jesus said in the end time, there will be false prophets who will appear. There will be false Christs, he said, who will appear. And they will attempt, if it was even possible, to deceive even God's people, even the elect, Jesus said. John's looking at what's going on in the life of this church. He's going to unpack in detail in just a minute. And he says, brothers and children, you need to know, it is the end time. Jesus is with the Father. We're awaiting his return. And look, false prophets and false Christs have come out among you. Many antichrists are among you. What does antichrist mean? Anti-Christ. That's what it means. Christ, Jesus, anti. Anti-Christ. Against Jesus. Against Christ. Anti-Christ. That's what it means. If you're waiting something a little trickier, I don't have it for you. It's a really strange word. At times when John uses it in 1 John or 2 John, it can sound singular, but here he uses it, it can sound plural. It can sound personal and it can sound impersonal. John's intent right here in 1 John is not to talk about what might be the Antichrist, but it's to talk about, as he mentioned in chapter 4, and we'll tie it in together so you can see it, the spirit, the ethos of that which is Antichrist at work amongst God's people, even in the midst of God's people, in the time before Jesus returns, which is the time in which we live right now. So what does that look like? Look at verse 22. Let John define it. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So anti-Christ. Who is that? He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the anti-Christ. He who denies the Father and the Son. In chapter 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the anti-Christ. Those who do not confess that Jesus is from God. That is anti-Christ. You've already heard what's coming and now is in the world already. So what was happening is there were people who were amongst this church, in the midst of this church, who had come back amongst God's people, just as there are right now, right now, who were affirming significant and important things about Jesus. They were agreeing with the church about certain things about Jesus, but the fullness of their picture of who Jesus is and what he has done had now gone beyond the bounds of what God had taught in his word. They were now telling the church that, I agree with you, Jesus might have been a man, he might have lived on this earth, and, and who knows, divinity may have come upon him in his death and may have raised him from the dead, but you're missing something about Jesus. And the scholars will debate, and it's really of of not super significant consequence right now, of what the particular teaching was that was confusing these people. The reality is, there is teaching amongst God's people that affirms particular truths about Jesus while denying the truth of what the scriptures say ultimately about who Jesus is and what he's done, or they go beyond the bounds of scripture. You may have had someone knock on your door to tell you something like this. That they may acknowledge that Jesus was a man who lived on this earth, who, who was a great teacher, who taught many great things. That the Bible has a lot of true things to say about Jesus. And you can go to the Bible and they'll read with you and tell you that's all true. And they believe that. But they'll tell you that you need to go read the golden tablets that were found in the woods a few hundred years ago. That the Bible is just part of it. It doesn't reveal the fullness of what was going on. You're, you're missing some kind of important information that you need to really know God. That is anti-Christ. 
That's what John is talking about here. He's not concerned with this singular antichrist and whether he's coming in helicopters and doing barcodes or not. He's talking about an ethos and a spirit that is antichrist. And anything that is antichrist, that does not confess that Jesus is from God, denies Jesus and it denies the Father, it is against Christ. It is antichrist. Jesus himself, you can write this down and go read it for yourself. In Matthew chapter 12, he said that you are either, anyone is either with me or against me. And John said in verse 23 here in John chapter 2, first part of verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Here's what happens a lot with this kind of teaching. You get the general, I'll make it a kind of a generality for you. It's usually more nuanced, but here's the thing. We worship the same God. I believe in God the Father. I believe in the Almighty. I believe in the sovereignty of God up there in heaven. He rules and he reigns and nothing is without his control. I believe in God, but I just have a different understanding of Jesus. We're worshiping the same God. You've got this thing with Jesus, and I've got this other thing with Jesus. He was a real man. Sure, he was a great teacher. He taught many great things and many truths, and he worshiped God the Father, but it was incomplete. I, I believe in, who fills in that picture? Oh, Muhammad. You can go and preach the sovereignty of God to your Muslim neighbor, and he'll never disagree with you. You know that? Your Muslim neighbor believes in the absolute sovereignty of God but he denies Christ. He denies that there is only one way to know the Father. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus said in John chapter 14, you can write this down. John chapter 14, start in verse six. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is anti-Christ to say we worship the same God. I worship the Father. I know the Father. You and I agree on God. We're good on that. You've got your Jesus thing, and I've got this other thing. That is anti. Jesus said no one knows the Father. No one comes to the Father. No one abides in relationship with the Father, the fellowship that John has been talking about, without Jesus. Apart from the life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and promised return, and ascending of the Spirit, you do not abide with the Father. That is what John is talking about when he says that there is antichrist, the work of antichrist amongst you. You can't say that you're down with God, but we differ on Jesus. I don't need to, I mean, we can take a whole morning just to list all the ways that that happens in our life today. I mean, that's that, I mean, I'm just going to be general with you. That is antichrist. If you reject Jesus, then you reject the only legitimate and true route to relationship with God the Father. There is only one true God, and he is the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you cannot know him apart from Jesus. Without the Son, you cannot know the Father. All roads do not lead to the same God. They do not. In anything that claims to take you to relationship with the Almighty God apart from the person and work of Jesus is anti-Christ. So what that means in a global perspective, just to pick your eyes up just a little bit, is that there are billions of people around this world right now living in what John calls darkness. Pray to what John calls deception. Who will take their last breath today and spend an eternity apart from the fellowship and relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they desperately need to hear the truth. 
They have fallen prey to deception. All roads do not lead to the same God. You just pick your Jesus. You pick your Christ. Jesus said there's going to be many false Christs that come. Many false saviors, messiahs. But you can't know the Father if you don't know me. What that means for us as a community, as a, as a, as a body of believers here, and for, and for us as, as pastors, John's reminding us that we've got to be aware. There, there is deception afoot today. That it is easy to, to be deceived by a truth that's plausible. You know what plausibility is, right? Plausibility means it looks like it has an air of truth to it. My, my, my great example for plausibility is if I walked into a room with a beach ball under my shirt and a wig on, you probably wouldn't think I was pregnant, would you? I hope not. But if you saw me downtown by a construction site with a hard hat on with a long blueprint tube under my arm, you might buy that I'm an engineer or a contractor, though I'm not. There's plausibility to that idea. There are ideas that have an air of plausibility to them, that that agree with significant things about the word of God and the truth of God, but ultimately deny what God says about himself and what God says about his son. And we need to be aware of those things. We need to guard our hearts. We need to love one another and care for one another. What that means for us as pastors, it means I'm always on guard at what it is you're reading and listening to. Uh, Every time you come up to me with a video to watch or a book to read or a message to listen to, here's what I'm, I'm listening for. In the end of this book, in the end of this video, in the end of this message, what is exalted? Who is exalted? Am I exalted? Are the gifts of God exalted or is the person and work of Jesus exalted? If you listen to something or read something or, or watch something, let me just give you a red flag. Don't even give this to me if you are aware of this in a book you're reading or something you're watching. If the person teaching or writing that you're reading says that they are doing what they are doing because no one else has seen it, because no one else is teaching it or preaching it, because they're the only ones that God has now given this information to, Close the book. Throw the book away. Don't give it to me. Because I'm going to tell you to do that. The truth of God about the Son of God is given to us by God that we might know him. And we cannot know him apart from his Son. Is there something or anything in your life in your world that is compelling you away from faith in the person and work of Jesus, causing you to be tempted to put your trust and put your hope in something other than who he is and and what he has done, to disbelieve him instead of believe him, to trust for change and transformation in it or in them instead of Jesus. If so, get away from it. It's anti-Christ. It's anti-Jesus. And John said he's writing all these things to the church, not to scare them, not to worry them, but to encourage them, to encourage them. Why should this be encouraging? Why should the church be encouraged by this? Well, first, it means that the real Christ, the real Jesus had come, that he had done the work that God had called him to do, that the kingdom of God had been established, that in his resurrection and ascension, the kingdom of God was alive and well, and he's promised to return and finish what he started, that that was real because he said when that happened, there are gonna be false Christs and false prophets that come. John's saying, be encouraged, you've got the real Jesus, and you can see it because of this deception. Don't be scared by it, be encouraged by it. 
And then he's going to go on and tell them a few more things to encourage them about their own standing and their own assurance with God. And somehow we'll get through all these. We're only in verse 19. It's fun. It's a lot, isn't it? It's good. Thank John for these words. Uh, Verse 19. This is what he said about these deceivers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. Why? Why did they go out? And why should we be encouraged by their leaving? What about people who had been with us, who had been baptized with us, that had shared communion with us, that had watched our kids, that had listened to the messages, that had read the Bible? What about their leaving should encourage us? I don't get it, John. And they didn't get it either. That's why he's writing to them. He said it's encouraging because it should make plain to you that they're not of you. What John is saying is that they're, act- they're leaving the community of faith was actually a grace of God. It's actually a gift of God to the church for them to leave because now you can look and see that they had never really been changed at all. You can actually see that though they shared in some of the common life of the church, they had never been transformed by the truth of the gospel. John is not talking about a people who went from first to second Baptist. He's not talking about people who have gone from first to second Baptist because the music is better or because they think the preaching is better, or because they don't have to wear a suit, or because they don't meet in a gym. and they, We leave churches for far too many illegitimate reasons, but that's another service altogether. There are right reasons to leave a church. That's not what John is talking about. He's talking about people who have left the faith. They've actually not just left one church and gone to another. They've left the faith, and John is saying, look, be encouraged. That's a gift of God's grace, because now you've seen them for what they really are. Now you've seen that they were never really of you. The truth that has changed you and sustained you, that you're persevering in right now, it had never been true for them. It had never changed them. It's a gift of his grace that they might see that. Because now you can see what they're doing. Now they've come actively back to deceive you. They were never of you. Your best interest is not what is in their mind. They have shown their allegiance to the world that Ray talked about last week that is dark and that is passing away and not to the truth and to the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And God's giving you this gift, John says. Be encouraged. This is where, I told the first service about this, and maybe this is helpful, I don't know. But this is where you get so much conversation and and talk about what the visible church is and the invisible church is. Have you ever heard of that? Anybody ever heard of the visible church and the invisible church? Is that freaky? You haven't heard about that. Maybe I shouldn't tell you about that. But I'll tell you about that. The, the visible church, you'll hear people talk about this all the time. This is the visible church. Well, that's like Redemption Hill. That's the, the local, physical congregation gathering of God's people wherever they might be around the world as they gather together for the mutual encouragement of God from his word and the worship of God and the service of one another. That is the, the physical church. And what John is saying is that in the physical church, there might be people who really aren't part of the church. There's the invisible church too. Those are the people from all times and in all places who have been transformed by the grace of God. And ultimately, only God knows who they are. And so when looking at the visible church, we don't really know. Only God truly knows with certainty who's his. There's fruit in our lives that we can look to to see the grace of God and the spirit of God at work in our life. But only God really knows. This is one of the things that just since chills up my spine sometimes. I mean, Matthew chapter 7. Have you ever read Matthew chapter 7? People have come to Jesus. They said, you know, we taught in your name. We prophesied in your name. We did miracles and healings in your name. 
And he looked at him and he said, depart from me, I, I never knew you. I, I never knew you. You shared in the life of the church, the life of God's people. What do you mean? What, you didn't know Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6 points to a similar reality. Relatively confusing text sometimes, but it points to a similar reality. There's the capacity for people to taste and to experience as part of God's people the grace of God, the, the work of God, and yet not be transformed by God. And not, in a sense, choose to fall away from God, but to never have actually known him in the first place. That's what John is saying is happening here. It's been for your good that these people have left you because now you've seen who they really are. They've never really been transformed by the gospel, but you have. You have the truth. You know the truth. The truth of God and the person of Jesus Christ is yours. It has changed you and it is changing you. And John's encouraging to them and he's confident for them because they know this truth and because they have two weapons in this fight against deception. And this is where he's going to end and this is where we're going to go. This is where his encouragement comes from and this is where I hope your encouragement will come from, not just now, but in the days ahead. John says, I I am okay and confident in you and for you because you have the spirit of God and because you have the word of God. And those two things work together in your life. In your life, give me confidence. Look at verse 20. John says, but you, he's talking to the church, you've been anointed by the Holy One. So for the sake of translation, let me just tell you, because we have limited time. Holy One, he's talking about Jesus. That's who he's talking about. You've been anointed, there's another great word we're going to talk about, in last times, antichrist, anointing, this is a, we get them all this morning, don't we? You have been anointed by the Holy One, by Jesus, and you all have knowledge. What is the anointing? You ever heard of that word? Ever heard of anointing? Did Herb ever talk about being anointed? No, no Herb didn't use anointing. I grew up in a, in a tradition where that was a word that you heard all the time. Uh, anointed. You know, the phone's anointed. The, 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 the message is anointed. I mean, it's just all the time. What is the anointing? Well, let me just give you a shade of background to help make sense. Let me look at my clock. Let me give you a shade of background to help make sense. In the Old Testament, the anointing, this, this word anointing, what was used to talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit that signified and consecrated and set apart people or things for a sacred purpose that God had planned. So you'll find in the Old Testament that there was an anointing on things, oftentimes maybe in the temple or in the tabernacle, or on people. And those things that were anointed were set apart for a particular sacred purpose by God. That's kind of what it was meaning. You begin to see it filled out a little bit more later on in the Old Testament when that anointing was was meant to signify the dwelling of the Holy Spirit with a particular person for the work of ruling God's people or speaking God's word to the people. So you'll find kings and prophets being anointed by the Spirit of God for the work that God had set them apart to do. Then you see that filled out a little bit more as you get into the New Testament. And you get into Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. And you hear Peter talking in Acts about Jesus being anointed. Now, in the mind, set apart for a particular work of God, dwelling with an indwelling of the Spirit at his baptism. And you see the Holy Spirit anointing Jesus, coming down, dwelling in Jesus, empowering Jesus in his life and in his death, and then raising Jesus from the dead in his resurrection. 
When John is saying that you, followers of Christ, church, have been anointed by Jesus, he's referring to the same dwelling of the same Holy Spirit that indwelled and empowered Jesus. It's the common gift of Jesus to all of his followers, to all believers. He had promised that he would do it. He had promised that he would give it. He had promised that he would send his Holy Spirit to all people who believed in him by faith. This was the great promise. John chapter 4, verse 13. First John 4, 13. We'll get there in a few weeks, but he, he says this. By this we actually know that we abide in him, talking about God the Father and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. Now, there's kind of background. I wish I had done this on a slide so you could really see it. But if you've got a pen, let me just do something for you that will help make this clear. I mean, multiple people said this helped them in the first service, so I'll do it with you. If you've got a pen, get ready to write something down. If you don't, close your eyes and, and imagine it. You can see it. The word anointing here in the text, and, and we don't do a lot of the Greek stuff. It, please don't feel like we're trying to impress you. I want you to see something. The word anointing is the word chrisma. So write down C-H-R-I-S-M-A. That's the word for anointing. Now, Jesus is the Holy One that John is referring to here. Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the word Christos. Write down Christos, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S. That is the Greek word for Messiah, it's a Hebrew word, which is a translation for anointed one. All right? So we've got anointing, we've got anointed one. Here's what John is actually saying. You can see it in the original language far more clear than you can in English. John is saying Christos, Jesus, anointed one, has given chrisma, anointing, to every one of his followers, to every believer, which in turn makes us, write this down, C-H-R-I-S, T-O-I, Christoi, anointed ones, or Christians. Christos has given Chrisma to all of his followers, which makes us Christoi, anointed ones. John is talking about the very gift of God that he gives to all of the followers of Christ, which is the very spirit of God, which makes us anointed ones. Christians, that's what he's talking about the universal gift of Jesus to all of his followers. In John chapter 16, the gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 13, just write that down. You can go look at it later. I'll read it to you now. Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. John wants the church to make the connection between the role of the Spirit and the Word of God in the life of the Christian by seeing that God has given you His very Spirit, the same Spirit that empowered Jesus, that raised Him from the dead to live and transform your heart and your life. And one of the chief roles of that Spirit in your life is to reveal to you and to lead you and guide you into all the truth of God's Word. And God's Word is the Word of God that exalts God's Son. Jesus said that you're going to get the Spirit of God. And that same Spirit that is empowering me, that will raise me from the dead, is going to lead and guide you into all truth. And what truth will he lead you and guide you in? All truth that glorifies me. 
Everything the Spirit does in your life and in your heart, leading you into truth, leads you into truth about the person and work of Jesus, and it makes much of Jesus. So if the truth is leading you to something other than Jesus, it is anti-Christ. That's why John says in chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, beloved, test every spirit. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from me For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. This is the Spirit that Jesus promised. This is the Spirit that is the common grace of Jesus to every believer. This is the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and leads and guides you into all truth in God's Word about God's Son. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You want the test? Jesus Christ come from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It is anti-Christ. You can talk back to me. It's all right. This is the spirit of the anti-Christ, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You have the truth of God. You know the truth of God about the Son of God. And you have the very Spirit of God in you that raised Jesus from the dead, leading you and guiding you into that truth. And that truth makes much of Jesus. If it does not, it is anti-Jesus. And there are plenty of deceiving ideas and deceiving spirits at work in our life, in our world, amongst us right now. He said, don't be unaware. Be confident. Don't be unaware, but don't be afraid. Because you have the Spirit of God who leads you into all truth. And in truth, there is no error. There is no lie. And that truth exalts and glorifies Jesus. One of the commentators I was reading this week, I just love the way he said this. It's not particularly poetic, but it encouraged my heart. He said, the work of the Holy Spirit never takes us beyond the teaching of Scripture. The Holy Spirit helps us to accept and delight and abide in the truth of God about the Son of God. The Holy Spirit helps us to grow in our understanding of the teaching of God about the Son of God. The Holy Spirit strengthens our power to put into practice the teaching of the truth of God about the Son of God that transforms the life of God's people. The Holy Spirit increases our confidence in the truth of God about the teaching of the Son of God that we might have assurance, which is what John is after here. The Holy Spirit never changes the teaching of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit never expands on the teaching of the Word of God. See, John wants you to be encouraged. You have the truth of God about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And you have the very Spirit of God that empowered Jesus and raised him from the dead, leading you and guiding you not only into a knowledge of that truth, but a delight in that truth that then compels you to live in obedience to that truth for the glory of God. Be encouraged and don't be afraid and don't be deceived. You've got the truth and you've got the word and you've got the spirit. do Do you see that having a right understanding of the truth of God about Jesus such that it aflames affections in your soul about Jesus 
such that your heart and your soul is inflamed with delight and joy about Jesus, so that your life and your obedience and your, 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 your decisions and your words and your actions are then compelled because of that delight? Do you realize that all of that is a gift of God's grace? We only know the truth of God that inflames our affections for the person and work of God that then compels us to live a life that brings glory to God because God is at work in us by his spirit. It's all him. And for that, we're thankful. John's saying you don't need anyone else to come and give you anything else. Anything that takes you beyond this is anti-Christ. You have the truth and you have the spirit. And he says the right response then is two things. He only tells us really to do two things, to respond to the word in in two ways. And they're pretty simple. Verse 24. Let what you've heard from the beginning. So that's the teaching about Jesus and the teaching of the apostles. Remember this church was founded by Paul, taught by Paul, taught by John. They have heard of the teaching of Paul, the teaching of John, the teaching of Jesus. Let what you had heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Abide in the word of God. Do not fall prey to the temptation to move on from the word of God about the Son of God for anything pertaining to living the life that brings glory to God. Do not fall prey to moving on to some other teaching. Abide in in the word of God. John chapter 8, verse 31, the gospel of John. You can write that one down. Jesus said this. He said, if you abide in my word, if you abide in it, if you live in it, if you have trust and comfort in what it says and what it brings and who it glorifies, if you abide in it, you are my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth, the truth about the Son of God the truth about the grace of God and the work of God and the person of God, the truth will set you free. And John said, here's the promise. Jesus made it. I'm not making it. John's not saying he's given you a promise. Jesus gave a promise. Here's the promise. If you abide in his word, if you abide in the word of God about the son of God, eternal life. Eternal life. Jesus in John chapter 17 said, this is eternal life that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, right here, right now. There is a future dimension to it, yes, in the promise of God that we will live in eternity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit because of our faith in the person and work of Jesus. And we look forward to that. We allow it to shape the urgency with which we live. That's why John says it's the last hour. Live with some urgency. There is a future ahead, but... Eternal life is a promise here and now, right now. It's the abiding in and with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's the present, present abiding life and relationship, the koinonia that John started this letter out with, that is true and is there for a follower of Christ. This is the promise. Life, not just existence, but life. Abide in the word. And then John says, abide in God's spirit. Verse 27. The anointing, Holy Spirit, that you receive from him, Jesus, abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you. 
John's not talking about the need for teaching about Jesus from the word of God or else John wouldn't have written the letter, right? John's talking about the need that these people were being told that they had for people to come and tell them something that the Bible doesn't say. That the Bible gives them part of a picture, but they need more information to get a complete picture. John's saying you've got no need for anyone to come and teach you anything new. You have the truth of God. His anointing teaches you about everything, and it's true, just as it's already taught you. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God and makes it alive and active and delightful and satisfying in the heart of a believer. This is what the apostles did in the preaching of God's word. The Holy Spirit worked in the preaching of God's word to transform hearts. He still does that today. Here's John's encouragement. Abide in the word. Now abide in the spirit. The anointing that you receive from him abides in you. Now he ends verse 27. You abide in him. If you put verses 24 and 27 together, I'll end with this. I'll let John end it. If you put verses 24 and 27 together and try to make sense of what they say in one sequence and consequence, I hope it encourages you because this is why John wrote it. He wrote it that you would be encouraged just as this church was encouraged. Look at verse 27. The anointing that you've received from him abides in you. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit abides in you. He leads you and guides you into all truth about Jesus. Verse 24 says, if what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, that's the word of God about the Son of God. That's God's word. If God's word abides in you and God's spirit abides in you and God's spirit leads you into all truth about God's word that makes much of God's Son, then you abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he gave us eternal life. This is the courage that John sought to deposit in the hearts of God's people. And I want to pray that that God's spirit would do what only he can do and he would bring courage and comfort to your heart with those same words. Let me pray for us this morning. God, if there's any of us in here who who think that we need something more from you about your son than you have given us in your word. I pray that you, as only you can do by your Holy Spirit, would just shine a light on that deception and that falsehood. You would expose that deception in our hearts and bring us to a true delight in your word, that your spirit would work in our hearts and bring us to a true delight in your word that makes much of your son and makes much of Jesus. And for those of us who, who are yours, who, who delight in you, I pray that we would have confidence and, and comfort from the knowledge that your spirit is in us and, and is teaching us and is leading us and is guiding us and, and is showing us how your word makes much of Jesus. Help us to delight in, in your word and the truth that it brings us about your son. We ask this, that we would be transformed more and more day in and day out into his image and likeness for your glory and our joy. Amen.